somehow just recently, I think in part because I received a, um, a New Year's greeting of a sort, uh, an electronic card, an e-card from a very dear friend. Uh, just a little while ago, I was <clears throat> when I was working on notes, thinking about what I might speak about this evening. And uh, it hadn't really struck me, oh, it's New Year's Eve, this idea, tomorrow, New Year's. It's not something that is usually a, not a big deal for me. I don't, it kind of goes by unnoticed a lot. And, you know, it's just a concept in other countries. New Year's happens at different times of the year. In Burma, it's in mid-April. You know, it's not... Not now, but then I was thinking, well, there's something about this time of year and this uh, change. We're, we're turning back towards light in a certain way. We've, we've passed the darkest days. The, the shortest nights are, are behind us by a week or so. It doesn't feel like it. It's days are short. Still dark days, but this, this idea of... Uh, turning towards the light, New Year's in that way, this movement towards light. <clears throat> in one of the texts, it's said that there are, are four kinds of yogis. There are yogis who, uh, for whom practice is slow and difficult. Some where it's fast and difficult. Somewhere it's fast and easy, and somewhere it's slow and easy. You know, most of us would put ourselves in the slow and difficult category, probably, <laughs> I think. You know, it seems like a slog and doesn't seem that easy a lot of the time. But it's also said there are four kinds of beings, those who are moving from darkness to darkness, those are, who are moving from light to darkness, those who are moving from darkness to light, and those who are moving from light to light. And even if we would put ourselves in the slow and difficult category, we can all say, well, we're moving towards light. We're moving towards light in the, in the turning of the year, and we're moving towards light in, uh, in our intention and coming on retreat and engaging with the spiritual life. However, we hold that. There's that turning towards light, that movement towards, towards light, that we can all uh, say that. You know, it doesn't matter how you feel about your practice. That's not, that's not the criteria for assessing that moving towards light. But this incredible uh, aspiration and intention we hold in coming here and engaging in this beautiful, difficult, incredible work. And so I just want to acknowledge and appreciate you all for your practice and how how deeply I am touched by that, by spending this time with you, sitting here in this hall with you. The beauty and power of that is, is far greater than any of us really, really can realize or understand. <clears throat> I had the intention to begin uh, the talk this evening with a little bit of chanting. And I, I think I still will do that. I'm some concern about my voice being up to it since I'm coming out of time of having been ill. But uh, it feels like a good thing to do on this occasion. And sometimes I think it is actually very useful and can be, um, can be really kind of powerful in a way to hear some of the teachings in the original Pali language. And uh, so I'm going to do a portion, chant a portion of the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is the, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness. 
karaniya metta sutta. The word karaniya is, is part of the name of this. And that word has, has the, uh, it means a, a thing which is to be done. So this is the, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness to be done. And this chant, this sutta, this discourse, is one of the uh, group of um, uh, chants and teachings that are called paritta chants. The word paritta means blessing or protection. And so just the doing of, the hearing of, the engagement with this chant just as a, as a thing. <laughs> is considered to be a blessing and a kind of protection. And it was taught originally as a protection. So I'm offering it tonight as a blessing and protection for all of us in that spirit. And I won't do the whole thing. I'll keep it a little short. And it's traditional with this kind of chanting, it's traditional to uh, invite the devas to come. Devas, this word, Deva or Deva. Yeah. It's, it's understood in, in the Buddhist teachings and throughout the suttas. There's uh, references to other realms of, of uh, planes of existence, realms of existence. Some of them are, are these celestial realms and, and various kinds of earth deities and uh, ones that live in the forests and in trees and various kinds of places. And... Um, <clears throat> There's this invitation for them to come and, and hear the Dhamma. And it's not required that one believe in, in these realms. The, the power of it is in this, that points to the heart of the uh, teachings on metta, on loving kindness, which were introduced today in the guided meditation. It's this inclusivity, all come all beings. And, and so the idea of, of devas, of some kinds of celestial beings, different spirits or beings, that may not be meaningful to us. And I, I'm not asking anyone to believe in that. But we, well, we might suspend disbelief. You know, as the scientists say on the NASA website, you can look it up, they say that... Uh, some gigantic amount of what they feel has to exist in the universe for it to function the way it is, is in the realm of dark matter and dark energy. I think 75% is dark matter and 20% is dark energy. And, and somewhere around 5% of the universe is made up of the stuff we can actually see and measure, stars and people and toaster ovens and uh, all of that stuff makes up less than 5% of what they say has to be out there. So there's something beyond what meets the eye there. <laughs> so we might, we might suspend disbelief rather than having to engage in any kind of belief. So I'll do this short invitation to the devas and then I'll do just the very first part of the uh, <clears throat> Karaniya Metta Sutta. And I know there, there's at least one person here besides me who knows this, and uh, should you be inspired to join me, <laughs> anyone who knows it, you're welcome, of course, to add your voice in to this. So you can just sit and listen. And I learned this way of chanting from a, a teacher, a Sri Lankan man named Damaruan. And uh, when he was very young, just two or three, he spontaneously began doing all kinds of chants, the Satipatthana Sutta and the Bojanga Paritta and the Metta Paritta and all these chants just started coming out. He hadn't been taught these. He was barely talking, speaking at all. And the people said, oh, it was in this very ancient kind of way that people hadn't heard. And make of that what you will points to some interesting possibilities, if nothing else. So uh, this way of chanting is from Dhammaruan. Not the, the first part, not the invitation to the devas. I don't know where that's come from. But the words are traditional.
Avikita chita paritam banantu Samanta chakavalesu Atragachantu devata Sadamang munirajasa Sunantu sagamo kata Sage kame charupe Giri sikaratate chantalike wimane Diperate chagame Taruanagahane gehawatum hikete Bumachayantu deva Jala talawisame yakaganda banaga Itanta santike yamunivaravachanam sadavome sunantu dhamma savanakalo ayang badanta dhamma savanakalo ayang badanta Dhamma Savanakalo Ayang Badanta Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Karani amatta kusalena Yantam santam padam abhisamecha Sakko ujucha sujucha Suacho chasamudu anatimani Santu sakko cha subarocha Apakicho cha salahukavuti Santindriyo cha nipako cha apagabo kule suvananugido Nachakudam samachare kinchi yena vinyu pare upavadeyum Sukino va kemino hontu Sabbe sata bhavantu sukitata Yeke chi panabutati Tasavatavarava anavasesa Digavaye mahantava Majimarasaka nukatula Dita va yeva adita Yechadure vasanti avidure Bhuta va sambave siva Sabbe sata bhavantu sukitata
this is what should be done by one skilled in goodness who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and those to be born, may all beings be at ease. This beautiful wish of of loving kindness of metta. This beautiful movement of the heart. It's interesting, something I never thought I would experience in this lifetime. Our president recently went to Burma, a place that I've gone almost every winter for most of 15 or more years than that now place that's dear in my heart. And, and the president was there earlier this autumn and he, someone sent me this link to a quotation. He, he said, I have, I've just seen earlier today the golden stupa of the Shwedagon pagoda, beautiful golden uh, temple, very vibrant living temple there in Rangoon, incredible place. He was visiting there and he said, I've been there to the Shwedagon and I have been moved by the timeless idea of metta. The belief that our time on this earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. I mean, to have a president <laughs> refer to metta. I just, it just like, huh? And then recently, I, this is old news, but I'm kind of usually about a year behind on news. This not the meta from the president, but there's a basketball player whose name is Meta World Peace. <laughs> his, he's formerly was known as kind of a tough, he was famous for his tough defense, kind of knocking people down, <laughs> but he's changed his name to Meta World Peace. And I thought, that is really something. <laughs> something about that. I mean, there's, okay, there's a danger of things becoming mainstream, but there's something fantastic, too, about the idea that this, this idea of, of unconditional love being uh, just kind of getting in there somehow. And, you know, whether or not people really relate to the depth you know, things can become superficial when they become more in the mainstream. There is this possibility, but that it's there at all is so cool. I think that there's this idea that a, a sitting U.S. president would say, I am moved by the idea of metta, that one can orient oneself around love, peace, tolerance. So I'm going to offer something tonight around uh, reflections, ideas of, about this quality of loving kindness of metta, this beautiful, powerful practice that we're weaving in, hopefully, to this retreat, and, and we'll be guiding very intentionally in the afternoons. And this quality of uh, kindness, of friendliness, really. In one place in the text it said, just as one would feel love for a dearly beloved person, you know, so one extends loving kindness to all beings. And sometimes we'll hear unconditional, universal, unconditional love sounds, well, maybe a little beyond the scope of what we're capable of, but we can all relate so directly to this idea of friendliness. Friendliness. 
friendship that we would feel. That's something we can all touch in our own heart, our own experience there. That's this quality of kindness, friendship, of metta. And this we cultivate because it's beautiful in and of itself and because it's an essential, powerful support for our uh, insight practice, for the practice of liberation of mind and heart. It's, it's not even any, in any way separate from that. It's essentially entwined in that. And there's a quotation from uh, J. Krishnamurti that I love that speaks very directly to this. <clears throat> he once said, when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. So we can't separate these things. They interweave and intertwine. And and metta forms this quality of kindness, of care, of acceptance, so many many different qualities that, that come together in this field of what we call metta. This is a very essential ground on which the practice rests. It's in there, in, in the beginning, in the middle, the end. And it engenders these qualities of, uh, of patience and acceptance, of uh, a kind of fearlessness that serve to support the practice in so many ways. It has the, the quality, the characteristic, the function of, of softening the mind and heart, increasing the pliability, the spaciousness there, putting us at ease. And when our mind and heart is open and spacious and, and flexible and at ease, then, then the, the possibility for clear seeing and wisdom to arise is, is greatly enhanced. It serves as the, the ground for that. So it's not only compatible with the path of awakening, but it's, it, it really functions as, as part of the, the basis for that possibility. And it's a great source of strength and courage for us. And this energy of metta, we, we can do practices <laughs> cultivating this, and we do them, and, they're, and they work. And we don't have to, this is from my experience, we don't have to like doing it or feel like it's doing anything. And it works. <laughs> I promise. If we make sincere effort at these things, they work. Something happens. But this quality of metta, this is the energy, it's a quality of connection. And it arises organically, naturally in the practice, just as the result, as we start to to penetrate, to see through, to unravel the layers of conditioning, of, of habitual patterns of reactivity, as we start to see through and, and that starts to unbind, this quality of love naturally arises. So we don't have to worry about it. It comes in and of itself. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, once, uh, someone once asked him why he thought that, that people found him so irresistible. <laughs> you know, people find him irresistible, don't you know? People who have no idea who he is just see his picture and they just they want to go be around him. You know, he gave teachings in Central Park once, free teachings, and and they thought, well, some, you know, 50,000 people, some number would come. And some, it was in the millions of people who showed up there. And a lot of them had just seen his picture or poster, you know, on the wall of the subway station and just 
felt drawn to him. He has that quality. He said, I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I do get a little irritated. But in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. Maybe people like me for my good heart, he said. And you some, sometimes we, we read about, or maybe we're even lucky enough to meet people like that. I was able once to, to meet the Dalai Lama, not hang out and shoot the bull with him, but, but to offer my bee, mala beads and, and a kata and get that back and have him shake my hand and, and look me in the eyes very quick. Part of a long line of people, but, you know, he was right there. He was not somewhere else. And it was a powerful moment to... Um, to actually have that chance. I was talking in the group the other day. I'm not going to get anywhere near through this talk. Um, <laughs> doesn't matter. I was talking in one of the groups the other day about uh, a monk named uh, Mahagosananda. He was the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. It means the, the king of the Sangha. He was a, a highly regarded uh, teacher Buddhist monk, Cambodian man, who um, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, I think four or five times, should have gotten it four or five times. There's a beautiful picture, I've seen it, it's at the Spirit Rock in this little uh, hut they have, which has pictures of kind of the, the great ones in this tradition. And there's this beautiful picture of him, and he, he and the Dalai Lama are, are facing one another, and they're both have their hands like this in Anjali, and they're bent over, you know, almost double, that each one is trying to get lower <laughs> than the other one to show the greater respect. And they're trying to get down. No. And uh, he lived in his, his uh, last days and last years in a small temple very close to here, less than an hour away. And as he grew older, he, he had a decline in his mental uh, abilities, uh, perhaps Alzheimer's uh, disease. He, he had that kind of mental decline in some ways. And I used to have the chance to go see him once in a while. And one of the last times I saw him, I went over and, and he didn't know me. I was, we weren't friends. I was just someone who liked to show up once in a while and pay respects, one of many. And um, I, went, I went there and they said, oh, uh, uh, He's in Ajahn is in his in his room. You can can go and say greet him there. So I went in to pay respects, and he he just he had this beaming, childlike smile on his face, and he started giving me bars of soap and and boxes of crackers and things from his shelf, things that had accumulated in his room, handing me these things, and just it was just like being bathed in love and light. Just like the purity there of his heart. Everything else fell away. That's what was left. And when we're, when we're, if we have the chance to meet people like this, or maybe even just hearing stories like this, and you know, when we're with people like this, they relate to us as though we're the most important person there in the world, in that moment. And it's not because they hold us with this care in this field of welcome and of, of love. And it's not because of who we are, it's just because we're a living being. That's what it took. That's what it takes to be worthy to receive that love. Sentience is the criteria for receiving that, for being worthy. Right now, somewhere in the world, someone is sending 
metta to all beings. Guess who we are? We are one of all beings, right? Can we open to that? And all we have to do is be a living being to, to have them put it out there for us. This, this offering of loving kindness in that way, right now, I guarantee you, this is a widespread practice. <laughs> you know, we're not the only ones thinking about doing metta sometimes. Probably someone over the forest refuge is doing it, even that close. Maybe someone in this room. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings. It's, it's not, uh, there's no exclusions there. All beings, all possible beings. And people like this, this to, uh, His Holiness or Mahagosananda or others who I could tell you stories about that I know, they point to this possibility that one can actually live from a place of unconditional love. Yeah, it's a real possibility. You know, and so often we feel like we're born with a certain amount of, of qualities like love or kindness or compassion or generosity or something, you know, that, well, you know, we meet some people, they just seem to have more of it or a lot of it. It's developed or something. And, and we say, well, you know, I'll never be like the Dalai Lama. You know, we compare ourselves and feel, well, we'll always come up short. But, you know, nothing is fixed and, and these qualities do develop. We can actually cultivate these things. You know, nothing is fixed in the mind and the heart. If it, if it was, there'd be no point in coming on a retreat. But this transformation is possible. <clears throat> and so metta has this, this quality, um, this generosity of heart. It's just this putting it out. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May they be at ease. And it doesn't ask for anything in return. There's not this, it's not offered in with a condition. I'll love you if you do what I want or you love me back or anything. It's this open-handed offering. And it recognizes the universal wish that all beings share to be happy or to be at ease, to be at peace. Even those who seem to be doing everything to create unhappiness for themselves or for others. Underneath there, there's a being who wants to be happy. They may be really confused about what brings happiness. But that's the bottom line there. You know, often we approach our practice as though, sometimes kind of as though we're setting out into battle, <laughs> you know, we, we can be in contention with our mind, with our heart, with our body, with what we're experiencing. There's a quotation I heard, I think it was in a talk uh, from Joseph Goldstein, who's the founder of this place, teacher and colleague of mine, teacher of many of you, probably. I think this comes from it's a, taken from the code of the samurai in Japan. It says, I make my mind my friend. And often we don't have the attitude of making friends with our mind and heart. You know, and we, we can relate to our mind and heart as a problem that needs to be fixed or Relate to it with judgment, criticism, without kindness. But this practice needs kindness. It requires the attention to understand rather than to judge. And we need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance. And we need kindness instead of blame. Reminds me of the story the Buddha spoke uh, about his own practice. Uh, the Buddha to be the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva. And it said that uh, the Prince Siddhartha, when he left home and 
in his spiritual quest, and he said, he, it said that he spent six years doing these uh, very intense, uh, austere practices, uh, culminating at the point where he, he almost starved himself to death in uh, this attempt to subdue the ego through the mortification of the flesh, which was, was and still is in some places a common kind of practice. He engaged in all these different practices of um, <clears throat> not eating and uh, all kinds of pretty intense things. And at one point he said, this is a quotation what he said about his own practice during that time. He said, I thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my mind. And then, as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down and constrain him and crush him, so with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind, and sweat ran from my armpits as I did so. Now, we may not go quite that far. <laughs> right? Sounds like a little, a little intense. But it's worth looking. Is there some way that we, we're trying to crush mind with mind? And at some point, he, he, re, he realized, you know, this, I don't think this is the way to go. He actually remembered in the story there, he remembered a time when he was, he was a little boy, watching his father do a plowing uh, ceremony uh, as the, the king or the local chieftain. He had to do a, a plowing ceremony at the beginning of the planting season to help ensure uh, the fertility, the crops to come along. And, and he was just resting in the shade of a tree and watching his father uh, do this. And, and just naturally went into kind of a, a meditative state of uh, calm and concentration. Just fell into this. Happens often, I think, with kids. And, and at this time after he'd been attempting to crush mind with mind, he, he remembered this time and he thought, oh, Maybe, maybe that's the way. And he said, I think that is the way. Not crushing mind with mind. So can we learn to make friends with our mind, with our heart, with our being? You know, it's the only one we've got. Befriend it. I make my mind my friend. I used to work with a program. I was uh, helping to study the migration of, of hawks, of these big hunting birds, as they pass through the, um, this was just north of San Francisco, California. There's a, a narrow place where the Golden Gate Bridge goes across from uh, one point of land in Marin County to San Francisco. And, uh, these kinds of birds, many of them, most of them don't like really to fly over big expanses of open water. It's a narrow area there. So they, they migrate through there in quite large numbers in the autumn. Uh, and uh, we were studying them. And part of that was to trap them and ban them in order to just kind of see where they went. And I kind of didn't like to hassle them, but it was a good. It was for a good purpose, you know, to to learn about their habitat and help preserve habitat. So I, I did this for a period of time as a volunteer, and and so you have to learn how to hold a a red-tailed hawk. <laughs> These are big, you know. This is like bigger than a big chicken. <laughs> they're, they're big birds, and they're really strong and really fierce, and they have giant hooked beaks and they have strong talons. I mean, someone, it's some million pounds per square, some gigantic amount of pounds of square inch that they can put with those clawed feet, talons. And, and if you're not careful, they'll put one right through your thumb. And, uh, and they're birds and they have hollow bones and they're, you have to, be careful because you don't, the last thing you want to do is injure one. So then you have to hold them really carefully. You have to hold them very gently and very firmly. It's a very delicate thing. You know, 
It's, it's a good image or, or uh, I think, a good way to look at how to hold our own mind and heart. You know, very gently but firmly also. So we don't necessarily let it run all over the place, but you don't crush it, harm it by holding it too tightly. <clears throat> Let's see, what would be good? <clears throat> One way to connect with this quality of love, of care, of kindness is. Uh, by touching this wish that all beings share to be happy, to be at ease, to be free. So we touch something that's larger than any one of us. And you know, so often we can feel somehow that we or, or others you know, that we're not somehow worthy of love. I touched on this earlier, this idea that our worthiness is determined by the fact that we're living beings, right? But we can sometimes feel that, well, you know, we, we aren't worthy of love or others are somehow not worthy. Well, the Buddha never said we have to prove ourselves in some way or that we're supposed to find someone who, who is without flaws or, or any irritating habits of any kind and, and then practice love for them, you know. But, but, you know, they have to f- get their act together first. It's not in there. He did say that one could look over the entire universe in every possible realm of existence and not find anyone more worthy of love than one is oneself. That's a powerful statement. And not find anyone less worthy. Also, we would add that. No one more worthy of love than each of us ourselves. I'd like to read you a poem that I, I've, I love. It's uh, by Mary Oliver. It's called uh, The Wild Geese. And speaks somehow to me very beautifully to this what I've just been reflecting on here. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So we don't have to be good. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. We don't have to prove ourselves, somehow fix ourselves. There's a quality that, that goes really hand in hand with the cultivation of loving kindness and this turning towards. A lot of what we do in this quality is this intentional turning towards goodness, our own goodness, the goodness of others. 
not in some way that we pretend that we're perfect or that you know we're all a mixed a mixed bag, a mixed blessing, right? We have qualities that we like in ourselves, qualities we see that are good in in ourselves and in others, things we like, things we don't like. You know, teacher Suzuki Roshi once said to his students, "You're all perfect just as you are, and you could use a little work." <laughs> right? And that's we could all kind of say that about ourselves, right? <laughs> but there's, there's, so we, it's not to deny that we could use a little work. But we, we turn towards the goodness. We turn towards lovability. It said that the proximate cause for the arising of this feeling of friendliness, of loving kindness, is seeing lovableness in beings. Turning towards lovableness. This wish to be happy is inherently lovable. We can find that lovability there, touch that in our own heart, see it in others. And when we turn our attention to our own goodness, to the goodness of others, and connect with this quality of well-wishing, we also can connect to another very beautiful, uh, powerful, essential quality of mind, and that's forgiveness. Quality of forgiveness, I think I want to say just a few words about that uh, to end the talk tonight. And it's really a vitally important thing for us in our lives and in our practice. And forgiveness points to the possibility that we can uh, live in the present without holding on to past hurts and grudges, suffering of, of memories of ways that we may have been hurt. And it doesn't mean it's important to really uh, understand this quality of forgiveness because it doesn't mean that we condone unskillful actions. And there may be things in the past that were done that, that are not forgivable. There may be actions which are not forgivable. That may be true. What we can do is forgive confused, suffering beings. Right? We may not be able to forgive certain kinds of actions, but we can forgive a being who acts from a place of suffering and confusion. And because we all know that in our own heart, don't we? We all can look in our own lives, in our own hearts and minds, and, and know and touch times where we have acted out of confusion and suffering. We, we know that place. That's not outside of our experience. We, we all know what it is to suffer, to be confused, to be in pain, and to act from that. And so there's the place where we can work with forgiveness. Because when we hold on to past hurts and grudges, when we carry that burden with us, we're letting then the past dictate how we are, who we are in the present. And there's a great loss of power when we do this, personal power. Because we forget that ultimately how we feel is not so much dependent on conditions, that, that there's a way that it's up to us, that we have some choice there. And so we can't change what happened in the past, right? But we can choose how we want to live. Somewhere, I heard this quotation, someone said, forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. And it's, it's kind of you know, amusing, but it's also something very powerful and true there. It means, giving up all hope of a better past, right? We, we can give up hope of a better past, and at the same time, we can let go of a certain uh, burden of hauling it around with us, like a weight we can carry. And there's a beautiful practice of asking for and extending forgiveness that's, that's done uh, often in monasteries where I have uh, spent time in Buddhist monasteries, maybe especially in Asia, but, but not exclusively there. 
And it's, it's a, a reflection, it's an offering that's often done at the end of a period of retreat and when one is taking leave of a place, one, one offers words to this effect. If in, by my actions, in my speech, by thoughts, in, by word, deed, by thought, I have caused harm, I have harmed you, I ask your forgiveness. And I freely offer forgiveness in any way that I may have been harmed by, by word, by deed, by thought. We offer this. And, and we might even begin some practices, especially if something comes up for us. We might begin some of our meditation periods with this practice of forgiveness. And, and bearing in mind that just because we've decided it's a good idea to practice forgiveness doesn't mean it's going to just happen, right? Just because we've decided it's a good idea doesn't mean that it's going to happen, you know. But having that aspiration to practice it and, and practicing it, really extending that wish, offering it, asking for it, bringing that to to mind and heart actually starts to have an effect. It actually works to do these practices. But we need to remember that that practices like loving kindness, forgiveness, the meditation practices, any of these practices are practices of purification, right? This, This is called the path of purification. And purification sometimes is messy and difficult and not so much fun. And sometimes what comes up is, no, I don't forgive. And sometimes what comes up when we do metta is hate. Sometimes that's, it's like someone once said metta is like a magnet and it pulls out everything that isn't metta, (laughs) pulls it out. And a lot of stuff can come up and some of it's difficult to be with and isn't beautiful. And we really need to remember and to remind ourselves that this is not a bad sign, not a bad thing. And that these practices take a while to bear fruit. And, and we form these powerful attentions. We, it's like planting seeds. We plant these seeds. And they will sprout and grow and flower and bear fruit in their own time. And our job is just to put those seeds, keep planting those seeds. We plant the seeds of mindfulness. We plant the seeds of love. We plant the seeds of forgiveness. Put them in there. And then we we have to let them flower forth in their own time. It's like a flower bud. If we we have uh, the idea that we want to see a flower, I don't know. Those buds are open. But we can't pull the, if we try to pull, it, pull the petals open because we want to see the flower, we'll just destroy it. So we have to let it open in its own time. Hmm. So I'll run over just a, a little bit here, but I want to speak uh, br- briefly about the uh, attitude quality of what's called bodhicitta, which is in some ways uh, maybe one of the most beautiful expressions of this heart of, of love, of offering, bodhicitta. The word bodhicitta literally means bodhi, bodh, awakened, and citta is mind, heart. Citta, mind and heart get put together in that word, bodhicitta, the awakened heart, awakened mind. <clears throat> and uh, it's... Uh, a beautiful expression of this quality of care, love. And, and this quality, bodhicitta, on the relative level, it manifests as compassion. As it's this heart of love that's turned towards suffering, the wish to alleviate that, the response of love in the face of suffering, this mo- movement of the heart, the wish for the well, welfare of beings, same movement, but specifically turned towards the suffering of beings. And, and, uh, and on the on more ultimate level, it, it refers to the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. 
beautifully summed up in a quotation from the great Indian sage Nisargadatta Maharaj. He said once, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me that I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. It's like the deepest understanding of, of that empty aware nature of mind reveals this quality of love, of care, of kindness, of compassion. That's what we find there. It's the manifestation in the world of that deepest understanding. So in, the, in a simplest way, we could say it reflects the understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others is one and the same thing, ultimately. No separation in that. And when I come into the hall and I bow, I, may, I bring into these words this thought into my mind. May my life and my practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. I bring that thought into my mind, into my heart. May my life and practice be for the benefit of all beings. And, and I started doing this some years ago, and, and there was this you know, little voice in my head would say, yeah, right. Who are you kidding? <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> but I would just go ahead and keep doing it anyway. Do it anyway. And I noticed a real shift. That little voice is kind of quieted down. <laughs> I don't believe it anymore. It's not the voice of wisdom. It's the voice of Mara, the voice of some old habit <clears throat> would diminish, diminish demean, belittle. And so I make this aspiration, may it be for the benefit of all. So I'll end tonight with just a few lines from Shantideva that I find beautiful, inspiring, a nice uh, New Year's offering for us. This is from uh, uh, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shantideva. Just a little bit from that. It's quality of bodhicitta. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained, and all merits to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, Enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Let's sit just for a few seconds here quietly. And then I'll, I'll ring the bell and we'll have uh, some time for walking. And um, I'll ask that the bell ringer uh, ring the bell at five minutes to nine uh, to bring us back into the hall. So I have just a little extra time. And uh, we'll be having a little, a little something extra for New Year's then at nine o'clock.
So thank you for your kind attention, and we'll meet back here in about 25 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.